Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello, and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. This is episode eight, recorded Thursday, November the 2nd, 2017. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Vitreo Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. In this episode, we will be speaking with Beth Ann Locke, Director of Advancement in the Faculty of Arts and Social Services at Simon Fraser University, Brad Jacobs, Chief Executive Officer of the Cape Breton Regional Hospital Foundation, Kathy Mann, founder of Kathy Mann & Associates in Toronto, and Scott Dexheimer, a partner at Vitreo. Today's topic is advancing the profession in Canada. What do we need to do to better our profession in Canada? Fundraisers are professionals, yet we do not have a profession. You don't need a formal education focused on fundraising, turnover in the sector remains high, and burnout is a real issue. Join us as we discuss this important topic and much more coming up next on Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We have four terrific guests with us today. I know it's going to be a really lively discussion. I can't wait. Let's get started. Joining us from Vancouver, we have Beth Ann Locke. Beth Ann and I are both directors of the AFP Canada Foundation for for Philanthropy. In fact, this is where I first got to meet her. Beth Ann, you're an amazing person. You have and continue to be a leader in the sector. Your sense of purpose and your sense of humor are evident in everything you do. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the podcast. I have a couple of quick questions for you, though. First, oh. first, you, first you, along with Rory Green, uh, are the co-founder and co-host of Ms. Rupt, an online platform for conversations among women in the fundraising profession uh, or amongst women in the fundraising profession. What is Ms. Rupt about and why did you and Rory start it? And my second question, since you're a graduate yeah. of the University of Washington, are you still a Huskies fan? So can you get us? Give us some feedback so on the those quick questions. answer is yes, I'm still a Husky fan, and go dogs. Um, I do get down <laughs> to Seattle. Yeah, that's right. Go, go dogs. Um, for Ms. Rapp, Rory and I were uh, we get together. Um, we knew each other before. We both worked at Simon Fraser, but we talked about some of the challenges that we had experienced as women in the profession. Um, sometimes these were things around ageism, sometimes they were around potentially sexism, sometimes they were just the frustrations that you get from working in this sector, which is completely glorious and sometimes very difficult. <laughs> so what we wanted to do was to just open up some conversations about things, and I usually tell people about the first first topic we talked about was, um, we called it getting ready for XYZ. Part of it was addressing the tension between major gifts and annual gifts and sort of older donors and younger donors and how we treat people. But we also then went into the workplace and sort of talked about the tensions there are between different generations. So we just like to have those conversations. We don't necessarily solve problems with them. But by having people talk about them and getting to see another point of view, I think we really open people up to um, being more empathetic with others and thinking about their own actions differently. Well, thanks, Beth Ann. I love the name. And uh, for those of you that are listening, uh, definitely uh, Google M-S-R-U-P-T, Ms. Rupt. Um, 
Thanks, Beth Ann. Also joining us this morning from Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, we have Brad Jacobs. Brad, I feel that you and I have uh, been to many of the same meetings at AFB nationally and internationally, but I, I, we haven't really gotten to know each other that well, so I'm thrilled. Um, I know you know Scott, and we're thrilled to have you uh, and get to know you better by having you on the podcast today. So, Brad, w- welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I, uh, you're welcome. Um, I, I, uh, I, in, in some of the pre-show conversation, um, we talked about, obviously, yesterday is a big day for the Houston Astros. I think it's their first World Series win. Um, but I also learned in the pre-show that you're a big baseball fan, and, and, and you actually have a history. Uh, you work, Did you do some work with the Expos? I did, yeah. Prior to my uh, fundraising career, um, I spent quite a bit of time uh, coaching and, and playing, but spent some time uh, with one of the national team programs, and uh, through that experience, uh, hooked on with a season with the Montreal Expos to work as a video scouting coordinator. So uh, baseball is a huge passion of mine, and uh, I'm really tired today, as I have been many, many mornings in the last couple of weeks due to the uh, five-hour games and pitching changes. <laughs> A lot of pitching changes. <laughs> Thanks, Brad. Uh, next, joining us from Toronto, we have Kathy Mann. Kathy, we had planned to have you on our podcast early in 2018, but with uh, Christian Mehta having to step off the podcast to help his mom, who's such a good son, and you were very gracious to, to, t- to take time in your schedule and join us today. We're really happy for that. Thank you so much, and welcome to the podcast. My pleasure. Christian's shoes are hard to fill, but I'll see what I can do. Oh, I, I, you're going to do just great. Kathy, uh, you and I have known each other for years. In fact, uh, you might not even know this, but I think you and I both transitioned into professional fundraising in the same year, 1994. Now, 20-plus years later, you have a successful consulting practice in Toronto, and you're involved in, fundraise, in the fundraising management certificate program at the Ryerson University Chang School of Continuing Education. I'm wondering, with your work at Ryerson, what changes you've noticed in the formal education for our fundraisers over the years, and are, are more t- more people taking formal training in fundraising, and what do you think the future holds for academic training in the fundraising profession? Uh, yes, there have been changes. I obviously uh, am pretty passionate about formal training for uh, fundraising professionals, but one of the things that I have seen, uh, one of the big differences that I have seen is that as um, people identify fundraising as a career and as they enter the profession earlier uh, in their careers or for those for whom it's a first profession, um, what we um, what we are what we have lost is some of the uh, sensibilities that people came to with fundraising when they um, sort of morphed into or evolved into fundraising from a program uh, perspective. So while I um, uh, think it's important to to have the increased professionalism, um, I I wonder what we need to do to make sure that uh, people who are entering our profession also understand. Um, the culture uh, of our sector and the, the sensibilities that come with it. Well, that's interesting. So, so alongside the formal education and with the rise in, in interest in that, we may have lost some of those, uh, you know, that, 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 that level of life experience that comes with being a banker, a lawyer, or a video talent scout for a baseball team. Well, and in addition to that, <laughs> we have lost, yeah, we, we may have lost some of the, um, um, innate understanding of the culture of the sector that we work in. 
and um, right. uh, there's something to be said for uh, uh, for how important that is uh, in in order to allow us as fundraisers to to do our jobs, to be able to talk to um, our colleagues who are delivering services and programs um, in such a way that um, that we kind of um, appreciate and understand where they're coming from. Well, that's awesome insight. Thanks, Kathy. We're going to probably circle back to some of those uh, those touchstones uh, later in the conversation. I'll just finish up uh, and introduce our, our last guest. Lastly, joining us from right here in Calgary, we have one of my business partners, Scott Dexheimer. Scott, welcome back to the podcast. You were on our inaugural podcast back in April along with Ron Bailey and Brian Bowman. It was on that podcast that we were able to announce your new role as the inaugural chair of the newly formed AFP Canada Board of Directors. I'm sure it's been a, a whirlwind of activity for this group since then, with the, uh, the AFP International Conference in San Francisco, the AFP Canadian Leadership Retreat in Ottawa in the summer, and, and the recent AFP Leadership Academy in Cincinnati. I'm wondering, Scott, um, maybe just, just at the front end, if you could take a few minutes to catch us up on, on where the AFP Canada Board of Directors has gone in the last seven months, and, and what are some of the, the plans for moving forward? Yeah, thanks, Vincent, and I love it. So where, where is it gone or where is it going? And I'll, maybe I'll talk about where it's going and and what I've what, what I'm enjoying right now is is seeing how the organization is beginning to to transition and and pivot from being a set up organization to to now really looking at how we can add value. Um, uh, some of the areas are are that this week and and actually starting on on November the third. Uh, through till Christmas, we're going to have people, we have 75 volunteers across the country who are planning to make visits with local MPs to talk about the value of our profession. Um, we've, we've partnered, uh, and, and a big thanks to, to two volunteers, uh, in the, in Toronto, uh, who've developed a, a new, uh, information piece to help support that work about why fundraising is important, uh, the economic drivers of, of the nonprofit sector. And, and why donors actually and, and their clients require fundraisers to, to help fulfill the mission of these organizations. Uh, so, you know, I think we've, we're, we're starting to gain some partnership, uh, with, with, uh, chapters. And, and I think also doing a new outreach effort is, is gonna help us to, to help maybe shake some of the cobwebs off our work as we do, as we do more active work in constituencies and in ridings to meet MPs and others. Uh, there's a natural spin-off to this, which is additional communications effort, and 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 so we're we're looking at uh, up soon soon to be announced partnerships with with uh, publications around uh, e, e e communication, uh, and as well starting to think further around how we can change the narrative for Canada and around fundraising. And I think you know it's we're. As a, as a as a profession who's been around for a while, Vincent, you and you and Kathy both started in '94. I started in '95. Um, this we're, we're starting to come out of our shell and talk more boldly about why this work is important and and why it needs to happen. And I think a natural evolution in Canada was to have its own AFP so that we could speak more broadly to Canadians. And, and as well help empower our professionals so that they could talk with their CEO and their boards more directly about why this work is important. And, and so as we build trust, as we grow research, uh, as we pull information that's relevant to our members, I think, I think the work of AFP Canada is going to be even more important. And so in, in early 2018, uh, we plan to have a staff member in place that I, I hope will, will continue to drive some of this work as it's mostly volunteer led 
from a from a Canadian strategic perspective right now, but from a from an action perspective, uh, it'll be it'll be led by a Canadian, hopefully starting in early 2018, which we look forward to. Well, thanks for that overview. I know we'll circle back to some of those points. I had to laugh a little bit when you said fundraisers coming out of our shell. That's usually what people talk about when they say fundraisers. Oh, you're, you're <laughs> definitely the quiet wallflower type. Um, very excited to hear about this new staff member, and we'll talk more about that. And uh, thanks, thanks for joining us again, Scott. Um, thank you all for joining us on this, our eighth podcast. Um, we're excited to hear from you all. Today's topic, and it's just, you know, a, a general uh, 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 topic for us to really dig into is advancing the profession in Canada. What do we need to do better and to better our profession in Canada? In Canada, there are 3,500 members of the Association of Professional Fundraisers. Uh, we are professionals, and yet we do not have a profession. Uh, to be a fundraiser in Canada, you do not need a formal education in fundraising. And while our professional credential, the CFRE, has gained popularity in recent years, it is also uh, not a requirement to practice fundraising. Turnover in the sector is high and burnout remains an issue. In a sector that is 70% women, men still make more money than women and there are still too few women in executive positions in the sector. We need to do better, but, but where do we start? What are the larger issues and how can we do better? Uh, Scott, I'm going to turn it back to you to open up the conversation and then I'm inviting all of us to really have uh, to dig into this. Scott, as chair of the, our newly formed national body, let's start with you. Well, I, I think there's there's three key areas that I that I think we need to grow. Um, I think we need to look at, at how we value professional development in organizations. I think one of the one of the challenges that we have uh, outside of you know social bias in 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 gender issues, because that's of course a huge issue, is that we need to look at how we are bringing people through this profession and offering them professional development. Uh, I think there's many fundraisers and organizations who have exceptional skill, exceptional ability, but languish because they're not given the opportunity to to grow and educate and learn new things in their organizations because there's a there's there's a, a desert of, of professional development in in many organizations, especially small to mid-sized organizations. And I think going to Kathy's point in the introduction is that as we're bringing people over from program side and others, they're sometimes brought in because they have a uh, a great attitude, maybe a great personality, but lack the education. And and in nonprofits, we just believe if we roll up our sleeves a little bit higher and we work a little bit harder, we're going to do a little bit better. And and we we sometimes fail to invest in in those professional development opportunities. So that's that's one of those things that we need to do to help bring more in. And if, as I understand the stats, about 80% of the of people that are in in positions that are non-executive are women. Doing an initiative like that can help to grow capacity amongst amongst a group that's that's typically underrepresented in, in, in management positions. I think two other areas. One is around building research and and building knowledge so that uh, you know people that are in this profession and are and are engaged in, in understanding around the issues, around legislation, around other areas is going to help build credibility in the profession, which I think then goes to trust in us. And, and for us to really penetrate organizations and to, to grow our, our up and coming leaders even further, we need to penetrate CEOs and boards around the value of this profession, around the impact that it has every day and, and what, what it will do 
what what this profession what these professionals can do to help take an organization to the next level. And I, I I find it sad when I see many organizations that have a wonderful group of professionals in them, and there's a perception they need to bring someone in from the outside to be the manager or the leader. When I can see those people have been there for years, they're ready. They just haven't been offered those opportunities to grow. And that's some really top line areas, Vincent, that I see. There are there are many sub issues and sub bullets around each of those, but but those are those are some areas that I would I would love to see addressed. Anybody want to tag into what Scott just said? Don't be shy. I think I think you I think you you nailed a lot of them, Scott. Um, uh, I, and I I mean I agree with all of them. I think the um, the nuance that I'd like to to add is that you know many of us who have the um, uh, privilege of being fundraisers tend to work for larger charities, and I think that. One of the uh, challenges uh, is that um, we as fundraisers tend to see our sector through the lens of larger charities. And if you, you know, look at the, the breakdown of charities by size, um, I think it's, it's something like 2.5% um, of all charities in the country have budgets of more than $10 million. And, uh, and you know, about 90 3% of charities have budgets less than $2 million. And how do we make sure that um, we're including those professionals who are in those smaller charities, which are fragmented and small and don't have the economies of scale to allow them to invest in, in uh, professional development? How do we bring those folks along too? Well, and, and Kathy, being in Canada, there's a locational disadvantage for many people because they're not close to a major center. And right. so you can you can overlay a disadvantage in in many areas as well, which is why adapting to technology, um, doing some initiatives like like Beth Ann is doing with 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 her her group are, are going to be really important for us to build a, a really strong, incredible profession. Hmm. One one Beth of the Ann? things I find yeah one of the things I think is sometimes frustrating is it does take a lot of time to develop people and develop their skills. Um, there is a lot of training that's available that tends to be around uh, tactics, fundamentals, and less in our profession around actual leadership. And I think that's why sometimes organizations just find it easier instead of working internally and, and doing that both with mentoring, sponsoring, but also outside education. It's just easier to go hire someone from, you know, the top marketing guy from, you know, this mid-sized firm in town because he knows how to manage a team and I think it's uh, I think it's a disservice to the fundraisers in many ways because as you mentioned Kathy there is a different culture around nonprofits uh, whether that's good or bad I just it's it's the truth it's how donors look at us and how they expect us to perform in many ways but it's also about what how we think and feel about the actual job we we um, perform um, so I think that that's, I don't know if there, for me, sometimes I look at when I go to a conference, what's here about developing leadership, but also what can you do in an hour to do that? You really need to have something that's more sustained. And so I think that's one of the challenges. People can grow up through some of the different areas of fundraising and come to a certain point, um, although that's much harder to do in small organizations. Um, but once we get to where there is management, 
what happens is what are we doing about succession planning? What are we doing to prepare people? Who are we looking at and passing over because we just for some reason don't think that they're, quote, the right kind of person, end quote. Brad, what do you think about that comment Beth Ann made about leadership training? Well, I think it's uh, it's critically important, and um, I, I, I don't want to jump back to what Scott started with around the value of professional development because I think we have a responsibility within the sector to be investing in mentorship and coaching. And, you know, mm-hmm. some of that happens formally, some of it happens informally. We've talked about, you know, I think Scott and Vince, your start time, 94, 95 in the charitable sector. I've been doing this work since 1999, and I think there's a, enough people now across Canada who've been working in the sector who've had, you know, positive track record and have had success and have learned from uh, both successes and failures that there's a lot to offer to that wider sector and to the newer professionals who are coming in. We're, we're now, as you've heard from Kathy, uh, training people to come into the sector. For many of the people who are here today, they've learned. And so I think we have a tremendous opportunity to take those people and invest in, in time and mentorship and, and coaching. And thinking about the time that I've been able to spend with uh, Association of Fundraising Professionals, there are a tremendous amount of great people that are doing outstanding work across the country who have a lot to offer. And I think one of the opportunities for AFP might be to think about how we can tap into that great network of people and help those you know newer people who are coming into the sector because we do have a responsibility to do that. What about um, thanks, Brad? What about uh, the, the the comments that that Scott made at the front end around research and um, I guess uh, impact, uh, getting them to understand that uh, that we actually are value as fundraisers to the organization. Thoughts from yeah, the group I'd love on those? Yeah, I'd love to chat about that. In fact, research is is a a, a passion of mine. I think that um, I had a really interesting experience when we were revising the curriculum at Ryerson, and I had a group of senior fundraising professionals and some academics in the room. Um, and the academics were citing research, and all of us senior fundraising professionals. Um, were looking like, well, I'm not sure that we've heard about that, including me who runs the program. And so um, it has become a little bit of my mission to figure out how to um, bridge the gap between the the research that's happening um, and bringing it to the practitioners. So the research is out there, and um, uh, and and I, I, there are some initiatives that are beginning to 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 uh, unfold that will. Um, Bridge that gap between the um, uh, the the academics uh, and the practitioners, um, both in terms of uh, the research, but also bringing them together so that they can collaborate in the in the research. Because wouldn't it be handy to have practitioners being um, even more engaged in uh, in, in some of the uh, research that's being undertaken? I'm always surprised at the number of people who've never heard of the just the what Canadian donors want which is, you know, not even that expansive and strict research, but it's what we provide every year or every other year through, um, you know, through donations to the foundation. And they don't even, I people have never heard of it that I talk to many, many times. And so I'm interested in that gap and how we, we do close that. I mean, I'm in an academic setting, so you 
you know, I'm exposed to that all the time and I understand how important it's driving people here. But out in the real world, is it because people don't have time, Kathy, do you think? Do you think it's that somehow it's not filtering down or should this be something that, um, you know, leadership in an organization, um, you know, sends out and encourages people to to read and experience? What do you think? I think, well, I think there's a great opportunity for the new, um, leader in, at AFD Canada to be, to be taking this on. I, I think it's a matter of, um, uh, on the one hand, we are all so busy that we're not necessarily going out of our way to try to, to, um, find the research. And, um, on the other hand, sometimes the research is really hard to find. It's not like you can easily say, show me re- fundraising research because so much of the research on our profession is being done by so many different disciplines, right? It's being done by pro-social scientists and marketing and neuroscience and you have to, um, you know, be able to um, identify how to track track that down. So um, I, I think we're, we are going to get there, but right now um, the, the research that's being done isn't necessarily being um, easily, uh, it's not curated anywhere central. So I think we, we need to, you know, figure out what the steps are to have some sort of curation um, and then furthermore make it um, accessible because not many of us are necessarily going to plow through um, very dense academic um, uh, papers. You know, Kathy, go ahead. Being on, face, being on Facebook the other day, a friend of mine who's an internal medical specialist and posted him, you know, sitting on his back deck reading reading this month's update on his profession. Which um, he's required to I, do. Which he's, he's required, required to do that. And, and so... You know, I, I'm not saying we need to take it to that monthly update, but it would be it would be nice for us to have, and I, and I love that word curated. You know, I think we often think we need to do it all, but there is a lot of applicable research that that's happening, you know, throughout North America and the world that, that we can use and and put it into a Canadian context. There's also need for very specific Canadian research. I understand that, um, but as it uh, turns out, that, there is a lot of yeah, Canadian research. Absolutely, there is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's a, there is a, there is a, there, go ahead, Scott. I, I want to weigh in at the end of that, but keep going. Yeah. And there's a, you know, what I've realized more, more lately is that I think we, and, and, and as I've pulled information and as we pulled information out, out of, out of the market to see what's available, that we, we un, keep unearthing more and more Canadian research because we're asking questions. And I think that's where there's, there's so much information available now and it's welcome to technology. Is that curating, even though it's more available, is becoming more difficult to to better understand the difference between research and opinion, um, how mm-hmm. how surveys are impacting our work and the applicability of those surveys. And I want to make sure we've got good quality information we're providing as well, which is one of the areas doctors have, is that that's usually done through a very specific research process that we still don't yet have in Canada, or 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 in our field. I was I I was struck yesterday. Um, uh, one of our partners, uh, uh, Andrea McManus, she sent me an article from Nonprofit Quarterly called "Giving Numbers: Reflections on Why, What, and How We're Counting." It was an American piece, but it was really the history of research in philanthropy and charity in the U.S. And it, what struck me about it uh, was I know there's a lot of Canadian research, but but south of the border, they've been doing this stuff since the 1800s um, and asking the big questions. I think we need to close that gap. 
we we like we do need to have more available, more curated, um, uh, more accessible Canadian research, and it needs to be, I think, done at a national level. So I, I will say, if anyone's listening to this and they uh, they're interested in this, feel free to get in touch with me. There there is some um, uh, quiet activity taking place to to try to make that happen. It's it's nascent, um, uh, but um, we're we're hoping that um, there will be something more formal um, coming down the pipe. So if anyone's interested, let me know, and we will. Uh, we don't want to be. Um, uh, we don't want to be competing. Whoever's, you know, I, what I'm. My vision is that we will we will find some entity that will uh, will take that on, and we can all collaboratively participate in it for the uh, um, the betterment of the profession. Nice, Beth Ann, Brad. Anything uh, on the research end that you have well, to weigh in on? Yeah, Vince. I'll add to that by saying that I think. You know, we are living in a world that's focused on relationship management when we're working in charity in the charitable sector, and establishing a culture of credibility and trust is something that will be heavily impacted by the amount of research we do and how we communicate and and, and represent that. And you know, I think a cornerstone of 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 you know being able to build relationships with people is trust, and so we want our donors to be able to look at our sector. For them to understand that we are well thought, uh, well established organizations who are helping donors fulfill their philanthropic dreams, and we do that by demonstrating that uh, we listen, uh, that we understand the complexities of what some of those issues are, but that we're taking the measures to build the absolute best communities we can, and that we need their help in order to do it. And so, I think anytime we can talk about uh, research in a way that can translate to helping donors fulfill their dreams, uh, that that is something that helps uh, the entire sector and will help us building and establishing trust. And I know that one of the, you know, recent topics of conversation around the country has been, um, you know, advocacy and how we do that and, and why that's important. And I think our donors are now at a point you know, five years ago, we probably said, well, our donors are way more educated. We're well beyond the point of the donors being educated. Today, they're passionate, and they want their values to align with the work that we're doing. So they're really curious about outcomes, and they want to know what we're doing to make sure that we're trying to help them fulfill outcomes. And they want to know that when they're looking at making major investments in the charitable sector, uh, that we're doing our homework and that we're in a position where we can help them make incredible impact. So I think research is, is critical to our future. Beth Ann? I agree I agree I agree with that because one of I think one of the magical things about our profession and it depends, you know, which area you're working in, because there are a lot of different areas in nonprofits, but um it's the magic of relationships and also having best practices that often needs more discipline and understanding what those best practices are, have been and are becoming. I think that there are many people who understand some um, what how things have run previously, but we're in a, a rapidly changing world. I think that that the research helps us have more discipline about the things we know, but I also believe that there's a lot of information out there outside of our um, immediate profession that we can use, like uh, psychosocial research and other kinds of things. So I sometimes want us to also get out of the kind of echo chamber where we sit sometimes talking about 
other non-profit things that are going on and hear what others are doing in different professions because I think through that we can pull the best things that can work for our donors because our donors are often experts in things that we touch on tangentially, right, because they have their passions or their um, businesses or their experiences too. So um, I'm I'm also interested in when you talk about curation is what we can pull in from what's already out there outside of the nonprofit profession to use. That that's fantastic. That's that. It's, it's one of those areas that I you know some of the some of the areas I've learned the most in are around brain science and positive psychology mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and you know you learn some of these things around around the basis behind nudge theory and other things that yes. that are are critically applicable to our sector. But maybe aren't necessarily applied globally because they're not they're they're understood as a tactic that works. But there is a, a huge basis of research behind many of the things we do in our profession, but they're not exactly. connected together. And and that mm-hmm. would be really helpful in a lot of ways. We um I love that comment about the echo chamber, Beth Ann. I uh, it whenever we do these podcasts, sometimes well not not sometimes whenever we do this, I, I listen for what we might want to title the podcast, and uh, a working title is emerging uh, that we need to get out of our echo chamber. So thanks for that. Other <laughs> uh, other thoughts and comments on that uh, that that track, or or other things that we were talking about with respect to research and value and impact and career development. No, but I would like to extend the conversation about this notion of the echo chamber. Yeah, that would be awesome. All right. Well, Sorry, did I? You know, I, I, I got to say it again. <laughs> echo, echo, echo. Keep going. <laughs> um, you know, we as fundraisers know that fundraising cuts horizontally across an organization, so it touches every aspect of an organization. Yet, as a profession, we tend to be somewhat insular, and. Um, uh, I think one of our um, opportunities for the future is figuring out how to, um, you know, reach beyond um, beyond the echo chamber. Um, we uh, our work is so um, powerfully impacted by our CEOs and executive directors and by our board members. Um, you had you had mentioned it really briefly, Scott, about you know moving beyond um, beyond just fundraisers. Um, how do we? Um, reach out to the CEOs, to the board members, to the volunteers, and even to the donors so that they understand um, our role in um, the charitable sector's ecosystem. And I think the, you know, we don't know the answer to that entirely, and I think lots of people have tried, but I would uh, love to see us spend more time um, intentionally thinking and acting on that question. And, and uh, Kathy, I, I'm 100% on with that. And, you know, so is AFP. And, and so this isn't an AFP commercial, but they, they just added mm-hmm. a pillar around social good to try to expand their, their audience for, for education and penetrating with, with the groups of CEOs and, and board members. Oh, um, awesome. We, we, you know, that's, that's part of the new international plan, which, which, of course, will roll out on, on the entire profession and how we can better work with, with other bodies. Uh, I, when you talk about echo chamber, that's a that's a lot of board of directors too, mm-hmm. and and you put a CEO in the mix of a board, who who you know is is maybe dealing with a revenue challenge. And as a consultant, I often see a revenue challenge is 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 just a symptom sometimes of a larger organizational issue that sometimes gets blamed on fundraising. Sometimes it is the fundraising department, but it's a it's a symptom. 
and and boards get into this mindset of managing symptoms right it's the and and i think understanding the 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 research behind this work and and we do a lot of work in my day job as a consultant is trying to educate ceos on how to how to properly you know build your organization how to invest in the future of your of your organization in terms of ensuring that it has sustainable revenue not just thinking about whether or not you're going to have money next week and why can't I have my $10 million endowment in 90 days like you, like I think I should. Um, you know, so we, we need, we have a lot of education that needs to happen, but a lot of this also comes from, again, based on research. The underdeveloped study in the, in, study in the U.S., which I hope we can replicate in Canada, is, you know, shows about the importance of leadership and the CEO, the, the engagement of boards and how that, Creates the culture from which in which an organization can can grow, and builds builds literacy across the organization around philanthropy. And so there's an interconnectedness here that the farther we get into our profession, the recognition of the interdependence of fundraising uh, on the success in, in an organization is is I think becoming more apparent and and research based. There's this great term in uh, in collective impact that talks about. Um, the 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 role of uh, of a backbone organization is to create an enabling ecology, and I think that um, uh, that fundraising uh, for all of us is part of um, uh, developing that enabling ecology. It's a great comment, uh, Kathy. I um, this is a great conversation, and it's going in lots of great directions. I want to just make sure that, uh, you know, Scott, you started off with sort of three pillars, but I want to give the group an opportunity to throw in or extend some of those if they'd like. You talked about career development. You talked about research. You talked about um, uh, getting some some more um, uh, understanding of the value of the fundraiser. Some other things that uh, we could be doing to better the profession in Canada? Well, one of the or things extension. that followed on for me on the echo chamber was talking about diversity and not just uh, race, but even when we think about our boards is what's the economic diversity, what's the diversity reflected in the community. I think some are quite good at that, but I know some places I've worked, we tend to have people who you would, you know, name people from dominant culture or people from a power culture who are on the board, but don't necessarily, we don't necessarily always get in the voices from, you know, other represent, uh, other representatives from, uh, you know, what you're working with. So whether that's, you know, STEM education or, um, you know, I'm doing higher ed, I've done healthcare, you know, how, who, how are we working to make sure that we're pushing not only our organization and the leadership to, um, look outside the typical fundraiser? And the typical fundraiser, I would say, tends to be, um, from dominant culture, wherever that dominant culture is, um, and, and encourage that. That's, because it needs to happen within our organization, but also at the board level. The, the pregnant pause is fine, but I'm curious to hear what people think about uh, this idea of diversity in the profession. I I think if we're going to be part of the reality of the Canadian uh, Canadian demographics, then diversity is going to be critical. Um, what I'm hearing more and more, and, and, and you know, is, is, is not just culture and gender, but even age. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's, 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 it's a bit of ageism that gets built into why aren't they more like us? 
and mm-hmm. and you know every generation has had its changes and it's and it's it's uh, I'm I'm so so enthralled with the fact that baby boomers don't like what their kids have turned into, and <laughs> and, and you know this this uh, this against the millennial age, when when we actually have a group of of amazing this amazing generation that has a, an amazing interest in social causes and and social connection and and global connectivity uh that's that's exciting so you know i think there's 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 many ways around our inclusive work and and again as fundraisers and organizations there's great information around the giving of this generation and how how actually generous they they are relative to what i hear of boards and others and and so you know we've we have research basis to show how diversity can make a difference and you know there's there's a great mm-hmm. uh, and speaking of inclusion there's been some great initiatives in in Ontario with with AFP uh and and one in Cincinnati where they really looked at how we were at the way we were engaging with 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 uh with other diverse groups and i think that's the the shift is that i think there used to be a, a thing of how how can I get my membership from them? But now it's it's I'm I'm hearing a more inclusive move of how can we better engage with new diverse communities and 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 try to understand the the realities of those communities and and be more responsive. So I'm, I'm hearing a general tone change in terms of the way organizations and not just AFP but organizations are thinking about inclusion and, and you know it's at AFP just just launched a new initiative around and they call it idea which is inclusion diversity equity and access it's not just diversity it's not just right. inclusion it's around how are we creating this entire environment that that that's accessible to to people that need and and may want to be part of it hmm. you know i feel pretty fortunate to be in toronto which launched um I guess Ontario launched uh, the the uh, Inclusion and Equity Fellowship Program, and they had two cohorts uh, of people run through it over the last couple of years, and it's been um, it was an amazing success, and and um, I think the people who went through the program, um, you know, got a lot of value. Um, uh, AFP has been able to identify leaders that maybe it would not have identified otherwise. So, you know, I do think it's incumbent upon us to to be uh, proactive about how we um, support uh, support it. And as Scott has mentioned, there uh, AFP is uh, is taking those steps. So I I look forward to more and more of that. That's a fantastic initiative in uh, in Ontario. I hope we can replicate it across the country. That diversity and inclusion initiative. A lot of those folks were not uh, from fundraising. Uh, the fellows right. that are involved in their program, which I thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Brad, you've been uh, you've been sitting in the corner there for a minute. Did you have anything you wanted to weigh in on diversity? Well, I think it's interesting when you talk about the younger generation of fundraisers coming into the sector. Uh, their entrance point into coming into the charitable sector is probably very different because they have a different degree of social connectivity through social media. It's interesting. We've just uh, are in the process of bringing on a new manager of annual giving with our organization, a uh, gentleman who's just turned 30, and I can't believe how connected he is to the community. And so, <laughs> typically, well, it's going to take someone a long time to come in and establish himself and get to know people. He's ready to go. You know, he already has a network built, 
and uh, it's, it's been through his career, but he has also been able to understand how to connect with people and build a network across the country and, you know, not underestimating the ability for him to stay in touch and relate to people through social media. Also have a communications officer who's uh, just turned 30 and his ability to be able to reach people and network and talk about impact in a completely different way. We launched a video uh, here for our organization that within 24 hours got to 35,000 people. Wow. The ability to tell your story and think about the ability to demonstrate and illustrate impact. The younger generation of people coming through our organizations already do that day in and day out, and they've been brought up in that environment where they understand reach at a complete Still there, Brad? Scott, are you still there? Yes, I'm here. I'm here. Oh, dear. I'm here. Okay. I think we might have lost Brad. Uh, he had a really uh, important point to make there, and I and I appreciate that uh, about what millennials bring to the table. I'm using the term millennials. I mean, that younger generation brings to the table. We um, we're coming to the uh, to the to close. We could probably do another full hour on this. Uh, it's been a fantastic <laughs> discussion, and I knew that this is where it would be. It's like everyone going, "Wait a minute, we're just getting into this." Um, mm-hmm. So I had no doubt we'd have lots to talk about. Uh, so clearly, this is a huge topic. Um, so we need to schedule a few more podcasts just focused on on this topic alone, uh, and we will. So I just I want to thank you all. You've been great guests, uh, uh, Kathy, Beth, Ann, uh, Brad. I hope you come back, uh, and and Scott. Um, you know, I, I'd like to have all of you back on our podcast. But before we go, I just want to I want to give everyone a chance to 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 hear a little bit more about you. So. I want each of you to have a chance to tell us a little more about what you're what you're working on, uh, where the best places folks can reach you, et cetera. And maybe Kathy, we'll start with you if we could. Sure. Um, you know, I the, the thing that um, uh, I always want to talk about if I have uh, the opportunity to do it is to talk about the distinction between traditional and social change philanthropy. Um, and it's uh, social change philanthropy is not necessarily a term that is uh, well understood in our sector. And uh, I, I think it is an important distinction, especially for those of us who do a lot of work in uh, in the realm of social change. So um, my fundraising consultancy um, works uh, largely in that realm of social change and social justice. And um, uh, while philanthropy practices um, are the same, they are executed perhaps um, somewhat uh, differently because of the causes that um, that are being supported in, in social change. So I'm delighted to have the opportunity to just say those terms out loud. And uh, if anyone has any questions, they can get in touch with me through my website at kathyman.ca. That's awesome. I was going to ask you where they could reach you. Thank you for putting those terms out there, Kathy, and thanks for being on the podcast. Um, Beth Ann. Your turn. What's up? What's on your mind? What do you want people to hear? Um, well, <clears throat> apart from my full-time job, which I really enjoy at Simon Fraser University, I've been, I do do some speaking and other things on the side, but one of the things that I'm quite interested in is what I've been calling high-touch philanthropy, which is working with high-net-worth individuals, how we do that better as fundraisers, how it's different from working with what you might call typical um, major donors, and what we can do to bring people into impact giving. Some people um, haven't 
done that. Some people grew up with a family that had wealth. Um, some people are just discovering what they can do. And I think that's a really exciting place to be. Um, so, again, high-touch philanthropies, working with high net worth donors. Um, what else? You know, I just, I really enjoy starting conversations. I have so much passion for this profession, and I always think there are ways we can improve what we're doing. I recently had an article come out, um, again, advancing philanthropy about um, sexual harassment and, and doing another one on bullying in the profession. And I think that um, there are a lot of places we need to do more self-reflection. Right. Well, thank you. What do you mean by impact philanthropy? Oh, uh, when, do you mean um, a philanthropy that has, has an impact, or do you mean impact investing, or what are you talking about? Uh, when 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 people go from say, you know, depending on your community, go from maybe they've they're giving twenty thousand dollars a year and they're giving it to you know one thousand to twenty different organizations because they want to spread it about, and when they feel like they can all of a sudden, I can make a big difference by putting you know fifteen, twenty five, fifty thousand toward one organization and really move the needle for that organization. Um, and I think when people come to that moment of of understanding the you know true impact that they can make with the type of giving, they can still give to other organizations. I'm not saying they cut it down, but when they focus and do that and work closely with the organization, it's um, it's actually quite moving for the donors. And, um, and exciting for them too. And so working with donors who've um, moved in those, um, you know, from doing what I might call annual major gifts, but lower end fundraising to really making an impact with what they do. Um, it's, it's exciting. It's fun to take people on that journey. Thanks very much. Where can, where's the best place for people to reach you? Through Simon no, BethAnnLock.com, B-E-T-H-A-N-N-L-O-C-K-E.com. Perfect. Thanks very much. Well, we haven't had Brad come back, so I'm going to turn to you, uh, here, Scott. To... Oh, you're here, oh, Brad. Sorry, I thought we'd lost. I thought we'd lost you. I've been sending you a couple emails. So sorry. We, uh, you, you're still here. I'm sorry that we um, we digitally cut you out, but uh, you're you're back. So, Brad, tell us what what you want people to hear. What's well, going on in your life? It's important to you. Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to contribute today uh, with this uh, great group. Um, a lot of the conversation today has been around trust and credibility and trying to build that in the sector. And one of the things we're really proud of that we've been able to do here at the Cape Breton Regional Hospital Foundation is successfully go through the Imagine Canada Standards Program accreditation process. And um, we think that's a big step that we've taken to help our donors, volunteers in the community see that we're an organization that, that really care and we want to do things properly and encourage people to uh, other charitable sector, people to take a look at that program. I think it's uh, it's working wonders for the organizations that are becoming involved. And it does go to further strengthen our sector. And um, lastly, you know, uh, you talked a little bit about baseball earlier. If you're interested in coaching, uh, I've started to dabble a bit in uh, in a coaching practice on a very part-time basis and uh, have a couple of people that um, I'm starting to work with across the country. So um, if that's something that interests you or you just even want to talk about coaching, uh, at Brasco23 is where you can reach me. And our website for our foundation is becauseyoucare.ca. That's great. Thanks, Brad. And I uh, really appreciate that. I'm, I'm, uh, really impressed that you've been going through our version of sort of the ISO 9001, the Imagine Canada process for, 
for your organization. I think that's going to be a big step forward. Thank you. Um, Scott, you get the last word. Well, thanks a lot. What do you want people to hear and know? Yeah, thanks, Vincent, and thanks, everybody, for, for joining the call today. It's, uh, you know, I'm... Uh, a few things that I'm working on right now is to to help uh, build a profession, as you know, and and a big part of that is going to be over the next year working on on the strategic plan for Canada, uh, in in concert with the AFP Foundation and our chapters and others, and and so that's that's something on the volunteer side that that we'll be looking at over the coming year, and I know that this conversation. Uh, will be listened to, and, and actually our conversation. I've made a couple of notes to share with the, the chair of that committee as well. Um, but you know, I, I work at Vitreo Group. I'm a partner, and, and uh, Vitreus or Vitreo is based in Vitreus, which is around clarity. And our 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 expectation is to offer clarity when nonprofits are dealing with complex challenges. And and as a as, as someone who who has worked with organizations nationally and locally, that's what I love to do every day. And I think that's one of the challenges I find in building a new organization and, and building this profession in Canada is recognizing the complexity, and, and hopefully we can do some things that bring some clarity to a few of those areas. Um, people can reach me on, t- on uh, my at my email at scott at vitreogroup.ca. Of course, our website is vitreogroup.ca, and I do carry a Twitter handle, though it's not as active at at s Dexheimer. Thanks a lot, Vincent. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Scott, and we really appreciate what you're doing at the national level for us, and we're excited to have that new staff person join us in the new year. So I want to thank you all for uh, for participating in another great podcast, and with that, the gift of another Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayo, has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you will join us again next month when our topic will be nonprofit governance. Have we moved the needle? Do we need to? Joining us then will be Sherilyn Hale, Simone Joyeux, and Andrew McManus. Talk to you then. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at vitreogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.